Good morning. good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek on this Labor Day weekend. And I hope and pray that if you've got tomorrow off and you don't have to work, that you have a good Labor Day. You know, and I and I hope that it's a good one. Uh, I hope a good. I, I think it's supposed to rain, but you know, rain comes. So enjoy it anyways. Have a good time. And uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Thank you for those of you who've come and joined us here in the room. Thank you for those of you who are joining us online this morning. We're grateful that you are here with us today as well. I'm excited about opening God's Word with you this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Now, some of you know that I've been moonlighting as a football coach. Don't worry, you're not going to see me strolling up and down the sidelines of an NFL game. I'm not going to be out there and the collegiate world's not coming after me. High schoolers are not coming after me, but I am helping coach my 10-year-old son's football team. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Obviously, when I say that I'm helping out there, I think that's a stretch of the word. I'm not sure how much help that I actually am, but uh, I'm enjoying getting to know the kids. I'm enjoying getting to know the other coaches. I'm enjoying getting to know some of the parents of the kids, and that's been an awful lot of fun for me. And since I I really, truly love football and always have, I'm learning a lot uh, as well, a lot of things that I I really didn't know. One thing that I've learned about coaching, though, just in general, is that coaching, particularly 10-year-old boys, is all about preparation. It's really preparing those kids to learn how to become football players. And and back when we first began practice back in July – you know, we had a lot of kids that came out and to play. Some of those kids never played football before. They didn't know, you know, they didn't they didn't know how to even get themselves suited up or anything along those lines. So, so a lot of the training had to just simply involve basics of teaching what it means to block, what it means to tackle, how how to do that properly without getting hurt. So it started that way, and then as the season has progressed, and now that we're playing games, added to some of those basic techniques, you have to start figuring out how to set up an offense and, and who's, who's the players that need to play certain positions and, and then how does that set with the defense to be able to combat against the other team's offense. And so there's some scheming that goes on in there. And so all of that's taking place during the, during the, the, the practicing. But one of the things that, that happens and started very, the very first practice and continues even with every practice that we do even now is, is conditioning. You see, that's, that's the sprints. That's the, that's the up-downs. That's the bear crawls. That's the stuff that none of the kids like. They don't like that at all. I, I, I've looked at them and I've watched them running and I thought, man, I wouldn't like that either. I, I don't think I'd enjoy that out here uh, running. And, and then, you know, they're, they're heaving and they're, you know, sometimes those sprints, they get tough and, and it's hot out there and they're crying. And they're wanting to stop and, and, uh, you know, but, but the coach, the coach, the head coach will start, he'll, he'll, he'll yell at them a question. Why do we do this? And they all respond back, fourth quarter. Why do we do this? Fourth quarter. See, what he's, what, he, what he's embedded in them and what he's ingrained in them to understand is that all of this conditioning, which is tough, it's hard. It's hard work physically on those kids. But the reason why they continue to get trained in this conditioning is so that when they get to the fourth quarter of a football game, after they've been running all these plays for the previous three quarters, and when they've been hitting these other teams, and they've been having all of this 
physical exertion, that they still have the physical ability to continue on, to continue to be able to play their offensive plays, to continue to be able to blow up the offense of the other team, to continue to be able to hit during those times when they need to be able to move their opponents back off of the ball. And so it's the fourth quarter is the reason why all of this happens. So what I've learned in coaching 10-year-old boys football, not that I know an awful lot myself, but in order to help them prepare to be good football players, they need to be taught technique and they need to be taught plays, but they must also be conditioned properly so that they can withstand the physical nature of the game of football. You know, the development of spiritually mature believers whose lives God uses to go out and make an impact on the world around them for the gospel of Christ, you know, there are some necessities for training that we must endure as well. In fact, there's some key and and what I believe to be fundamental training tools that the Lord uses for believers like us to grow us in our faith and to, and to spiritually mature us into the believers and to the Christians that God has called us to be. And this morning, I want us to identify some of those and, and to examine them from the life of Saul of Tarsus, who what we read about him, what occurs in his life in the years that immediately followed after his life was transformed and and changed on that road to Damascus. We looked at that story last week from Acts chapter 9. And if you happen to not be here, I would encourage you to go back and and to check that one out from our website and be able to, to, to get up to speed on this. But what I want us to do today is look and see what did God do in his life following his conversion and his transformation and his life change. And I have entitled today's sermon, Servant School. And the reason that I've used that title is because I believe that is precisely where God sent Saul following his conversion. He sent him to servant school so that he could, he could continue to mold his life into the man that he wanted him to become. And I believe that each one of us who name the name of Christ, each one of us who have come to faith in Christ, I believe God will send us to servant school as well. And that there are some specific tools that he will use in our lives to form us into the men and women he wants us to become. So let's pick up up there and begin reading about Saul's life there in verse 23, about everything that took place following his conversion. Verse 23 says this, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, and he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time that You have allowed us as Your church to gather together, to be able to open Your Word and to be able to read it and to to, uh, spend time contemplating it and chewing on it and thinking about it. And I pray that as we do that this morning, that we would apply the truths that we learn here to our own lives, that we would, we would recognize that you are working in our lives to accomplish great things for us and through us for the benefit of others and for your glory. So I pray that that would resonate with our hearts this morning and that we would walk out of here changed people, people that are, are trusting you for every step that we take in our lives knowing that you are doing a great work in us. I pray these things in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. So as we move through this passage today, I want to highlight for you some of the various tools and the training aids, we might say, that God uses to forge and to form His followers into mature believers who, who really flourish in their faith. To be men and women who are prepared to go out into the world and truly make an impact for the cause of Christ. And I want to identify and discuss four of those tools that we see that I believe emerge from this text today. And the first one is just simply this. It's, it's solitude. Solitude. Now, that tool may seem a little strange to consider, especially when you're talking about God sending you out into a world to make an impact for His glory. How does solitude work there? That's the first question. And the second question kind of comes, well, where do we see that in this text? Let me answer that question first, and then we'll, we'll look at the, the reason for solitude. The first question that we need to ask is, is where does solitude show up in these verses? Well, Look at that first phrase there, verse 23. Luke writes, Now after many days were passed. And the inquisitive mind that I have kind of comes up and go, Well, how many days is that? I mean, is that 10 days? 12? Was that a few weeks? How many days was that? Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us any more information than that. So for us to truly understand that, we we probably need to look outside of just what's written in Acts. And fortunately, the Apostle Paul later writes to to the Galatian believers in the book of Galatians, and he gives a little more information with regard to how we're to understand or help us understand those words. I won't ask you to turn there now, but you may want to turn there later and read this for yourself in Galatians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15, Paul kind of uses his own words to describe his conversion that we looked at last week in, in, in the first part of Acts chapter 9. And then he goes on to describe what happened after that. He says this, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That's Paul's way of describing his his conversion and his transformation and his change of focus that we looked at last week. He says this, he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Now, if we take what, what Paul says there, is he gives an account of, of everything that happened following his conversion to Christ, 
then what we read in Galatians 1, if we lay that over against what we've just read there in Acts chapter 9, verse 23, then what we realize is that after Paul, after Saul of Tarsus went into the synagogues of Damascus and preached to them, that's the verses 20, 21, 22. After he went there and preached there, he left for a period of time and went to the desert of Arabia. And therefore, the general consensus among scholarship is that the many days of verse 23, though it doesn't give us a specific amount, really coincides with that time that Saul of Tarsus went out to the desert to spend time alone with God. The pressing question then that really we ought to ask is, is why did he go there? Yes, to spend time alone with God, but what was the purpose of that? Well, the context here in Acts chapter 9 doesn't tell us, but the context about Galatians 1 gives us some insight. And we see it from some of the others of Paul's writing as well. But, but in Galatians 1 verse 11, Paul says this, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many believe, and I count myself to be among them, that Saul needed time to be quiet. Saul needed time to think. He needed time to consider all that had happened to him and how his life and how his theology had changed as a result of the Damascus Road experience. He needed time to listen to Christ and to hear from Him Himself. J.M. Boyce has written this. He says, The replacement of Saul's Jewish world and life view by a Christian theology would have been the work of more than a long weekend. Saul went to Arabia to think and to study. John Stott has added this. He says that Arabia was a place of quiet and solitude for Saul. He says, in this period of withdrawal, he meditated on the Old Testament Scriptures, on the facts of the life and the death of Jesus that he already knew, and on his own experience of conversion. The gospel of grace of God was revealed to him in its fullness. And he says, now he had Jesus to himself, as it were, for three years of solitude in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, times of solitude and quiet are absolutely essential for the growth and the maturing of believers. Now, admittedly, to to take extended times and periods of, of time away for the purpose of spending time alone with the Lord, that may sound impossible in our world, which is so fast-paced with, and it's crowded with noises. I, I mentioned in the first service, the, the voices start before I ever get out of bed in the morning. Sometimes before I even open my eyes, the voices are already calling to me about what needs to be done and what things are on the agenda and what's got to happen that day and what's coming up later. They, they start calling very early. I was talking to, uh, to, to a gentleman who, who told me, he says, I just feel like all I do is go from one fire to the next. And he says, and it's really, it's my hair that's on fire. I told him he was lucky. <laughs> but you, you, some of you, reg- you're shaking, you, you can resonate with it. You know what it's like to live a very, very busy life. 
We live in a culture that runs 90 miles an hour to, to go here and to go there, and we're all the time trying to juggle all the different responsibilities that we face. But it's important to remember what the Bible tells us. God speaks to us through His Word, and He says this, Be still and know that I am God. Let me say that again. Be still and know that I am God. You know, I've often wondered if we were judged by how well we obey that command, many of us would fail miserably. We're not good at being still. We're not good at being quiet. We're not good at taking time for solitude. In his book entitled Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster makes an interesting statement. He states that superficiality is the curse of our age. The desperate need today, he writes, is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. That's a penetrating observation. The world needs more deep people. So what does it take to become a deep person? What does it take for someone to drink deeply from the wellsprings of life? Well, Chuck Swindoll has written this. He says, a life marked by depth can only be cultivated in protracted periods of time spent in solitude quietness, and obscurity. Concepts, he says, which are become increasingly foreign to those whose life, who live their lives at the speed of light. That's why I believe Saul went to the desert of Arabia so that he could experience that quiet solitude that afforded him the opportunity to not just be intelligent, to not just be gifted, but to be deep. Saul's not the only example we find of that in Scripture. If you read the life of Moses, you realize he spent 40 years tending the sheep of his father-in-law. If you look at the life of David, you know that he was anointed king as a teenager, but he did not assume the throne until he was 30. You read the life of Joseph, you recognize he spent two years in an Egyptian jail, falsely accused. There are other examples as well. The point is simply this. Sustained periods of preparation are what fuel the future of effective servants of Christ. And during those times, those servants of the Lord Jesus learn the value of growing deep and they learn that they minister out of the overflow of that which God has been doing on the inside of them. Listen, the Lord knows how often... It is only those who have been seasoned by years of of life's lessons and extended times of solitude and quietness. He knows that only those are the ones truly ready to go out and be deep people who do great things. As one has put it, a shallow life offers no promise for lasting impact. So that's the first That's the first tool that I think God uses and it comes from that 
that first phrase there in verse 23. And it's the first thing that God does in, in Saul's servant school is send him to solitude. Notice the next thing, though, that we see. The next tool that God uses is, is suffering. Suffering. That's the second point there on your outline. We continue with verse 23, and what we read is that Saul became the recipient of that which he had personally doled out. He became the recipient of persecution. In fact, Luke tells us that after those many days, he came back to Damascus and that the Jews plotted to kill him. And, and so this essentially begins the fulfillment of exactly what the Lord had revealed to Ananias would be the part and parcel of Saul's life. He says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's what we read there in verse 16. Well, as soon as he gets back to Damascus, he begins to understand, this is what my life is going to look like. And at this point, the one who used to be the persecutor is now the one persecuted. And notice the intensity of the threat against Saul. Saul became aware of this plot to kill him, and he became aware of the fact that, that they had people stationed at all the various gates of the city, and they were looking for him. They knew who he was by face. And so they, they stood watch. They had sentries there who would watch to look for Saul so that they might capture him and put him to death. Consequently, it became necessary for some of the disciples, perhaps some of the very ones that he had won to faith in the Lord, who came to his aid, put him in a basket, probably a big, large fishing basket, and lowered him down through the wall of the city of Damascus so that he could remain alive. And then Luke tells us that Saul went to Jerusalem from there. And if we go back to Galatians 1, we realize that it was at least three years in between when he had left Jerusalem originally and gone to Damascus and was now returning. So at least three years it had been since, since Saul had gone back to the holy city. And by this point, news of his conversion and transformation had gotten there. And the Bible doesn't tell us what Saul anticipated his response would be or his reception would be when he got there, but it tells us what it was. They rejected him. The Christians, the disciples who were there in Jerusalem, when Saul shows up, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't believe that he was truly converted. They, didn't, they, they looked at more of what he was doing as a ruse, maybe like we would say a, a Trojan horse. He was, he was coming back under the name of Christianity so that he could get inside the church and then be released to do his havoc and to work his great harm among the church there. So they rejected him outright and didn't have anything to do with him. Not only was he rejected by the Christians on the inside, he was rejected by his Jewish brethren on the outside. He gets there and, and immediately, according to verse 29, he's disputing with the Hellenists, the very group that he used to be a part of. Now they saw him as a turncoat. And it says that they plotted and attempted to kill him. He was boldly proclaiming the Messiah among the very Jews that he had once been a part. And he, like Stephen, was about to be stoned to death had it not been for a group of the disciples who then came to his aid, took him down to Caesarea and put him on a boat to Tarsus. As I said, all of that rejection and having to run for his life was just the beginning of what his life would look like, a life that was constantly suffering all kinds of problems and, and difficulty and hardship. As a matter of fact, Saul even gives us a listing of all the things that he went through, a partial listing at least. 
from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. He says this, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep in journeys often. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. You know what Paul's list of all the things that he went through in life and what a general reading of of the New Testament tells us what it means that following Jesus is not easy. The reality is Christ never said that it would be. In fact, Jesus says, look, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they came after me, they're going to come after you. In fact, Jesus Himself was crucified by His own people. And He tells us that all who would follow Him should expect to receive the same kind of treatment. So, so why is suffering? Why is suffering such a powerful tool? Why does God use it? Why is that part of servant school? That honestly would be one of those things we would like for Him to leave off the list. Why is suffering one of those tools that God uses in servant school to form us and to conform us and to make us and to forge us into the men and women that He wants us to become? Well, that's really a sermon for a lot longer period of time and for a much longer series than we have this morning. I'm just going to give you three quick ones, three quick quick reasons. First thing I would tell you is this is suffering. Suffering brings glory to God. Our suffering ultimately brings glory to God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's that's a sweet way of saying suffering. You've been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, listen, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You and I may not always understand how God does it, but the reality is God uses the suffering and the trials and the difficulties that we go through in life to bring glory to Him. That's the first reason. The second reason we need to understand that God uses suffering and during servant school on us is because He uses it suffering for our own good. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands because some of you got your kids in the room, but how many of you, parents, right when you were having to use some discipline on your children, let them know, now this is for your own good (laughs) that I'm doing this. That's exactly what the Bible tells us in many times that the suffering we endure... It's for our own good. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light momentary afflictions is working, important prepositional phrase, for us, we're the beneficiaries, of what that was doing, it's helping us by giving us an eternal weight of glory. In other words, God's doing something in mind in your life through the difficulties that we go through 
that's storing up for us eternal weight that we can't even understand here. It's for our good. So it's not, a, it's not just one of those platitudes that God is saying to us that this is for your good. No, He's actually working out our good through our struggle and through our suffering. And then the final thing that I would say how, how suffering is used by God in servant school for our benefit is that He uses it for the benefit of others. Yes, it can be an example for them, but I would even go so far as to say this. Since the Scriptures teach us that we can never proclaim the good news of God and we can't preach the good news of Christ without expecting persecution to come along with it, since, since naming the name of Jesus, the one who died and rose again for us, is the good news of the gospel, every time we proclaim that, we're doing two things. We are inviting persecution onto ourselves, but we're sharing the good news of gospel with those who need to hear it. And when the good news of the gospel is shared about Jesus Christ, it will go out and accomplish exactly what God desires for it to do. It will radically change and transform lives. But that does not happen apart from the suffering that comes along with it. So suffering is something that God uses in our lives to bring glory to Him. It's something that He uses to, to advance us and to do good things for us. And it's something that goes along and coincides with our being able to proclaim the gospel for other people. So, so those are the first two tools that we see. He uses solitude, He uses suffering... And then from the text, I also want you to say he uses support. Support. That's the third tool. You see, it's important to recognize that amid all of the suffering that, that, and the rejection that Saul experienced, that the Lord did not leave him without any friends. The Lord didn't leave him without help and without helpers. In fact, we've already seen how when he was there in Damascus and that that plot against his life was taking place there, that he had friends there, disciples who, who let him down in a basket through the wall to his safety. We see the same thing occur there in Jerusalem. When those Hellenist Jews were plotting to kill him, he had a group of them that rallied around him, intercepted him, took him from Jerusalem up to, to, to Caesarea, put him on a boat so that he could travel to Tarsus so that his life might be spared. Do you know what that indicates to me? That indicates that even the Apostle Paul needed a Christian community. Let me say that again. Even the Apostle Paul needed a Christian community. He needed a family of believers to be connected to. He needed support. He needed help. Listen, the life of a believer was never meant to be lived in isolation. Rather, the Christian life was meant to be lived in the context of community where support is both given and received. Now, all of those, all of those brethren that helped him in Damascus and in Jerusalem, they go unnamed. We don't know who they are. Saul knew who they were. But we do have two names that are given to us. We have the name of Ananias. We looked at him last week. Ananias had that wonderful responsibility of going and laying his hands on this, this great threat to Christianity and ultimately praying for him to receive the Holy Spirit, baptize him and introduce him to the Christian community in Damascus. But we also read today about a man named 
Barnabas. We first learned about Barnabas back in chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, we learned about Barnabas that he was a generous guy. He was a guy who, who sold a plot of land, took the money that he got from that plot, gave it to the church, so that the elders of the church, so that the apostles could use it to help the poor in the church. So he was a generous guy. We learned that in chapter 4. We see him show up again here and we see him again in chapter 11 when he's being sent from the church in Jerusalem to go out to Antioch and he goes by and he gets Saul of Tarsus to take with him. Here, his responsibility is when Saul comes to, to Jerusalem, nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody believed him. It was Barnabas who, who went to him. It was Barnabas who listened to Saul, share his testimony with him. It was Barnabas who heard him tell about how he had ministered on behalf of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ in Damascus. And it was Barnabas who took him and took him to the church there in Jerusalem and personally vouched for him. Listen, Barnabas is the mean, is the reason that Saul was ultimately accepted into the Christian community in Jerusalem. And if we just take a step back from all the details that, that Luke provides for us here, what we realize is that God uses the tool of support to grow us and to mold us by reminding us that we are not independent. You see, the reality is none of us are independent. The very fact that we claim that we are believers in Christ we are declaring our complete and total dependence upon Him. Whenever we, whenever we read Scripture, we're drawn to the fact that we're sinners unable to do for ourselves what only God could do. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we are declaring our dependence upon Him. Every time we pray and we end our prayer in Christ's name, we are declaring our dependence upon Jesus. We are by nature dependent people, but we're dependent not only upon the Lord, we're dependent upon one another. Desperately so. As believers and members of God's family, we are created to be part of and live in community with other believers. And therefore, like Saul, we are not only to receive support from others, but like Barnabas, we are to be givers of support to others. Solitude, suffering, and support. Notice with me the final tool that I want you to see. The final tool that God uses to form and forge believers into the servants that He desires them to be is what I have dubbed the tool of the sidelines. The sidelines. As we noted earlier in our passage, it concludes with Saul boarding a ship heading to Caesarea to his hometown of Tarsus. And once he leaves and sets sail there in verse 30, we don't hear from him again until chapter 11, which is five, six, maybe even seven years later. What was he doing during that period? Of time? We don't know. Scriptures doesn't tell us. It was a period, though, that we know that Saul was sitting on the sidelines. He was in the shadows. He was waiting. Do you enjoy waiting? Your pastor does not like waiting. Write that one down. I'll sign it. 
You know what I've learned, though? I have learned that Christians whose lives are deep learned much of their depth by waiting. You know the Bible commands us to wait. Here's just a few. Here's just a few. Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 62 verse 5. My soul, wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from Him. Lamentations 3.26 It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 31 But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 49 verse 23 For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Listen, the Bible is chalk full of verses just like that that remind us that we are to wait upon the Lord. But I confess that often when it is my turn to wait on God, to do what He intends to do in His timing and according to His plan, I confess to you that I struggle. I remember struggling when Caroline and I lived in Fort Worth, Texas. I've shared this story in the past, but I knew God had called me to preach. I knew He had placed within me a a passion to preach God's Word. He placed within me a passion to serve the local church. And um, she and I had sold everything we owned and um, put it all in three of those pods, you know, the, the pods, that the way they, that this was the cutting edge thing back then and we put, we stored all of our stuff and, and I remember watching the, the truck come by and pick those things up and put them on the back of a, of a big, you know, semi and take that stuff off and I thought, wow, there goes all our stuff. I don't know if we're ever going to see it again. Um, we cashed in, cashed in my 401k I don't remember that there was a whole lot in there, but we cashed it in and took all the penalties so that we could pay off all the debts and anything we had so that when we moved out to Fort Worth, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in debt. And We took our little two-year-old daughter, Presley. She was the only child we had at the time. and We moved out there and made her grandparents just thrilled to death with me. I mean, both sets just loved me to no end for taking that little girl out there and we moved to Texas where didn't nobody know us, and we didn't know them. We didn't know a soul. Moved into a little, I don't know, seven or eight, nine hundred square foot house that was about the width of this room apart from train tracks. I hated Thomas the train for two years. <laughs> moved on to the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and man, I was just full of vim and vigor, ready to go eager to preach God's Word, ready to find a church. God had a far, far different plan for me. Um, God determined that what He wanted me to do was to wait. 
He put me on the sidelines. He stuck me in the shadows. I, I remember sending my resume out to literally hundreds of churches. This was, this was a time when if, if they even hinted that they might want somebody to preach, I was ready with my resume to send to them. And I have stated this in many different ways, but many different people. If I'd had a $100 bill taped to my forehead, I couldn't get an interview. Even if I offered to pay them just to talk to me, they wouldn't talk to me. Church after church after church refused it. I never could get... And the few that I did never called me back. Um, That went on for two very long years. But they were two very good years. They were hard. But they were good. Because you know what God did in those two years? He taught me some very, very, very valuable lessons that I would not have learned otherwise. And I will tell you the one, the one lesson that I walked away from those two years out there that I learned from all of that is that I am not indispensable to the work of God. It does not all rise and fall on me. I stand before you as a man who fully well understands that God has a plenty supply of folks that He will and can use in the ministry. The world does not center around me. It does not flow around me. He taught me that lesson more than anything else that I walked away from those two years I learned that. And I could tell you a list as long as my arm of other lessons that he taught me. But you want to know what else is I look back on it now that I learned in the process of that whole entire event? It's been 18 years since we moved out to Texas. And in the 18 years since then, what I've learned is this. The Lord was using everything at His availability to work out His timetables so that I would be standing before you right now. God had a plan in place that I couldn't see at the time, but He was working it all out. And what I have learned is that over the course of my journey is that God often prepares us and He forges us and He forms us into the servants He desires us to be often by using the very tools that we wish He would leave on the shelf. Things that I wish He would have never done at the time, I look back now and think, man, that was some of the best. And you know why? It's because He's preparing you for the fourth quarter. It's fourth quarter. It's endurance. It's learning how to trust Him in the middle of the difficult times. It's learning that going through those painful times are what prepare you for what's coming that you would not have been prepared for otherwise. And you may not be able to see it at the moment, but but trusting Him is what He requires of His people. I want you to know that Saul of Tarsus would ultimately become, become known as Paul the Apostle. And his influence upon the Christian church cannot be measured. And yet none of it happened overnight. None of it happened without the help of others along the way. None of it happened apart from having to endure heartbreak and pain and trouble. And none of it happened without him spending stretches of time in quiet seclusion. 
In fact, I would propose that it was through all of those things. It was through solitude, and it was through suffering, and it was through support, and it was through sitting on the sidelines that those very tools of the trade, God used those things to make Saul into the man that he ultimately became. And I propose that he will use those tools as well as many others in your life and in my life as well. And that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. God prepares us by using every tool at His disposal to make us into humble servants who are increasingly surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. He's never early, but He's never late. And He's never in a hurry because He's always right on time. And He is precisely using the exact right tools to transform you and to transform me into the men and the women and the boys and the girls that He desires for us to be. The question before us this morning is this. Are you increasingly becoming more and more surrendered to His Lordship in the process? Are you allowing the Lord to mold you and to make you into who He desires for you to be so that you can effectively serve Him? That may mean for some of you that you need to work on your scheduling. For some of you, it may mean that you need to take a more active role in scheduling time for yourself, some time for quiet solitude. Time in your life that you allow the Lord to speak to you through His Word time for you to stop and listen to Him. It may mean that you need to reevaluate your response to the disappointment and the struggles that come into your life through suffering. You remember that it's James in the first chapter of James that says we are to count it all joy when we encounter various trials and tribulations in our lives. Most of us count it all sorrow when suffering comes. But James says, count it all joy. Why? Because He's producing endurance within you for the fourth quarter of your life. He's working in those things to produce the very stuff inside of you that is necessary for you to continue to endure. Many of you need to recognize that God may be also using this as a wake-up call for you that you need to become more involved and committed to the local church. We are not called to live in isolation from one another. Doing life independently and alone is not part of God's plan. We are living community with one another, with other believers, providing and receiving support from one another. And some of you, you may be experiencing that time of waiting. You're sitting in the shadows, you're standing on the sidelines, and it's really hard. I want you to know this God's timing. Is textbook. God's plan is perfect. God's formation of your life is flawless. So trust Him. Rest in Him. Believe Him. Obey Him. And allow Him to make you into the man and the woman that He desires for you to be. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people 
of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word and for how it teaches us. And Father, even from from a passage of Scripture that in some ways may seem a little mundane, Lord, we recognize just what you're doing and how you were working in Saul's life. And, And to many from outside looking at our lives, it may seem very mundane what you're doing. But Lord, you're forming us molding us into the men and women, boys and girls you want us to become. So my prayer this morning is that you will continue to do that and that we would be found faithful in in trusting you and obeying you, not resisting you, not complaining. Father, we recognize that some things you're asking us to do and the road that you've led us on is hard. Help us to recognize you're preparing us for what's coming. You're doing a great work that we might not ever fully see the results of. But our confidence is not in our circumstances. Our confidence is in you. So thank you for that. If there's one here today that doesn't know you, has never placed their faith and confidence in you, I pray that today would be the day that they would humble themselves before you, the great God of heaven who loves them with an infinite love. That they would truly commit their lives completely and totally to you. I ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.